0: Section five of Bits About Home Matters by Helen Hunt Jackson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section five: The Reign of Archelaus. Herod's massacre had, after all, a certain mercy in it. There were no lingering tortures. The slayers of children went about with naked and bloody swords, which mothers could see and might at least make effort to flee from. Into Rachel's refusal to be comforted, there need enter no bitter agonies of remorse. But Herod's death, it seems, did not make Judea a safe place for babies. When Joseph heard that Archelaus did reign in the room of his father, Herod, he was afraid to return thither with the infant Jesus, and only after repeated commands and warnings from God would he venture as far as Nazareth. The reign of Archelaus is not yet over. He has had many names and ruled over more and more countries, but the spirit of his father Herod is still in him. Today his power is at its zenith. He is called Education, and the safest place for the dear holy children is still Egypt, or some other of the fortunate countries called Unenlightened. Some years ago there were symptoms of a strong rebellion against his tyranny, horace mann lifted up his strong hands and voice against it physicians and physiologists came out gravely and earnestly and fortified their positions with statistics from which there was no appeal Thomas Wentworth Higginson, whose words have with the light, graceful beauty of the Damascus blade, its swift sureness in cleaving to the heart of things, wrote an article for the Atlantic Monthly called The Murder of Innocence, which we wish could be put into every house in the United States. Some changes in school organisations resulted from these protests in the matter of ventilation of schoolrooms some real improvement was probably effected though we shudder to think how much room remains for further improvement when we read in the report of the superintendent of public schools in brooklyn that in the primary departments of the grammar schools an average daily number of thirty three thousand 275 pupils are crowded into one half the space provided in the upper departments for an average daily attendance of 26,359 or compelled to occupy badly lighted, inconvenient and ill-ventilated galleries or rooms in the basement stories. But in regard to the number of hours of confinement and amount of study required of children, it is hard to believe that schools have ever been much more murderously exacting than now. The substitution of the single session of five hours for the old arrangement of two sessions of three hours each with a two hours interval at noon was regarded as a great gain. So it would be if all the brain work of the day were done in that time. But in most schools with the five hours session, there is next to no provision for studying in school hours and the pupils are required to learn two, three or four lessons at home. Now, when is your boy to learn these lessons? Not in the morning before school, that is plain. School ends at two. Few children live sufficiently near their schools to get home to dinner before half past two o'clock. We say nothing of the undesirableness of taking the hearty meal of the day immediately after five hours of mental fatigue. It is probably a less evil than the late dinner at six and we are in a region where we are grateful for less evils. Dinner is over at quarter past three. We make close estimates. In winter, there is left less than two hours before dark. This is all the time the child is to have for outdoor play. Two hours and a half, counting in his recess out of twenty-four ask any farmer even the stupidest how well his colt or his lamb would grow if it had but two hours a day of absolute freedom and exercise in the open air and that in the dark and the chill of a late afternoon In spite of the dark and the chill, however, your boy skates or slides on until he is called in by you, who, if you are an American mother, care a great deal more than he does for the bad marks which will stand on his week's report if those three lessons are not learned before bedtime. He is tired and cold. He does not want to study. Who would? It is six o'clock before he is fairly at it. You work harder than he does, and in half an hour one lesson is learned. Then comes tea. After tea, half an hour, or perhaps an hour, remains before bedtime. In this time, which ought to be spent in light, cheerful talk or play, the rest of the lessons must be learned. He is sleepy and discouraged. Words which in the freshness of the morning he would have learned in a very few moments with ease, it is now simply out of his power to commit to memory. You, if you are not superhuman, grow impatient. At eight o'clock he goes to bed, his brain excited and wearied in no condition for healthful sleep, and his heart oppressed with the fear of missing in the next day's recitations. And this is one out of the school year's 216 days, all of which will be like this or worse. One of the most pitiful sights we have seen for months was a little group of four dear children gathered round the library lamp trying to learn the next day's lessons in time to have a story read to them before going to bed. They had taken the precaution to learn one lesson immediately after dinner before going out, cutting their outdoor play down by half an hour. The two elder were learning a long spelling lesson. The third was grappling with geographical definitions of capes, promontories and so forth and the youngest was at work on his primer. In spite of all their efforts, bedtime came before the lessons were learned. The little geography student had been nodding over her book for some minutes, and she had the philosophy to say, I don't care, I'm so sleepy, I'd rather go to bed than hear any kind of story. But the elder ones were grieved and unhappy, and said, There won't ever be any time, we shall have just as much more to learn tomorrow night. The next morning, however, there was a sight still more pitiful. The baby of seven with a little bit of paper and a pencil and three sums in addition to be done, and the father vainly endeavouring to explain them to him in the hurried moments before breakfast. It would be easy to show how fatal to all real mental development, how false to all nature's laws of growth such a system must be. But that belongs to another side of the question. We speak now simply of the effect of it on the body, and here we quote largely from the admirable article of Colonel Higginson's above referred to. No stronger, more direct, more conclusive words can be written. Sir Walter Scott, according to Carlyle, was the only perfectly healthy literary man who ever lived. He gave it as his deliberate opinion in conversation with Basil Hall that five and a half hours form the limit of a healthful mental labour for a mature person. This I reckon very good work for a man, he said. I can very seldom work six hours a day. Supposing his estimate to be correct and five and a half hours the reasonable limit for the day's work for mature intellect, it is evident that even this must be altogether too much for an immature one. To suppose the youthful brain, says the recent admirable report by Dr. Ray of the Providence Insane Hospital, to be capable of an amount of work which is considered an ample allowance to an adult brain is simply absurd. It would be wrong, therefore, to deduct less than a half hour from Scott's estimate for even the oldest pupil in our highest schools, leaving five hours as the limit of real mental effort for them and reducing this for all younger pupils very much further. But Scott is not the only authority in this case. Let us ask the physiologists. So said Horace Mann before us in the days when the Massachusetts school system was in process of formation. He asked the physicians in 1840 and in his report the answers of three of the most eminent. The late Dr. Woodward of Worcester promptly said that children under age should never be confined more than one hour at a time, nor more than four hours a day. Dr. James Jackson of Boston allowed the children four hours schooling in winter and five in summer, but only one hour at a time, and heartily expressed his detestation of giving young children lessons to learn at home. Dr. S.G. Howe, reasoning elaborately on the whole subject, said that children under eight years of age should never be confined more than half an hour at a time. By following which rule, with long recesses, they can study four hours daily. Children between 8 and 14 should not be confined more than three quarters of an hour at a time, having the last quarter of each hour for exercise on the playground. Indeed, the one thing about which doctors do not disagree is the destructive effect of premature or excessive mental labour. I can quote you medical authority for and against every maxim of dietetics beyond the very simplest. But I defy you to find one man who ever begged, borrowed or stole the title of MD and yet abused those two honorary letters by asserting under their cover that a child could safely study as much as a man or that a man could safely study more than six hours a day the worst danger of it is that the moral is written at the end of the fable not at the beginning the organization in youth is so dangerously elastic that the result of these intellectual excesses is not seen until years after when some young girl incurs spinal disease from some slight fall which she ought not to have felt for an hour or some business man breaks down in the prime of his years for some trifling over-anxiety which should have left no trace behind the popular verdict may be mysterious providence. But the wiser observer sees the retribution for the folly of these misspent days which enfeebled the childish constitution instead of ripening it. One of the most striking passages in the report of Dr. Ray before mentioned is that in which he explains that though study at school is rarely the immediate cause of insanity, it is the most frequent of its ulterior causes except hereditary tendencies. It diminishes the conservative power of the animal economy to such a degree that attacks of disease which otherwise would have passed off safely destroy life almost before danger is anticipated. It would be easy to multiply authorities on these points it is hard to stop but our limits forbid anything like a full treatment of the subject yet discussion on the question ought never to cease in the land until a reform is brought about teachers are to blame only in part for the present wrong state of things they are to blame for yielding for acquiescing but the real blame rests on parents here and there individual fathers and mothers taught perhaps by heart-rending experience, try to make stand against the current of false ambitions and unhealthy standards. But these are rare exceptions. Parents as a class not only help on, but create the pressure to which teachers yield and children are sacrificed. The whole responsibility is really theirs. They have in their hands the power to regulate the whole school routine to which their children are to be subjected. This is plain when we consider what would be the immediate effect in any community, large or small, if a majority of parents took action together and persistently refused to allow any child under 14 to be confined in school more than four hours out of the 24, more than one hour at a time, or to do more than five hours brain work a day. The law of supply and demand is a first principle. In three months, the schools in that community would be entirely reorganised to accord with the parents' wishes. In three years, the improved average health of the children in that community would bear its own witness in ruddy bloom along the streets, and perhaps even in one generation, so great gain of figure might be made that the melancholy statistics of burial would no longer have to record the death under 12 years of age or more than two-fifths of the children who were born. End of section five.